to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. My guest is Helen Russell. Helen is a best-selling author of books on happiness. Through her research, though, she discovered that a lot of people are terrified of feeling sad. This is something she struggled with in her own life. She experienced sorrow as a child when her sister passed away, and then her parents split up. As an adult, she struggled with infertility and an eating disorder. And she found one of the things that probably contributed to those problems was the fact that she never allowed herself to feel sad. Helen's research into happiness helped her uncover a lot of things about how to be happy, including why allowing yourself to be sad could be the key to improving your life. Some of the things Helen talks about today are why we're so afraid to be sad, how sadness can actually lead to happiness, and the skills you can use to cope with sad feelings. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Helen's mental strength building strategies and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Helen Russell on how allowing yourself to feel sad can help you grow mentally stronger. Helen Russell, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I recently read your book, How to Be Sad. And even as a therapist, I have to say, there's like a moment of hesitation about picking it up because I think... Do I really want to know how to be sad? However, you also make it abundantly clear on on the cover of the book. Your subtitle is Everything I've Learned About Getting Happier by Being Sad. So can you just explain for anybody else who might have that moment's hesitation, like why would I want to read a book about being sad, how sadness is actually part of becoming a happier person eventually? Absolutely. And I'm so glad that I've won you over on that. Yeah. So I think many of us have that apprehension about being sad, but actually sadness happens to all of us. And sometimes in heartbreakingly awful ways, it's normal. We can't avoid it. Studies show that suppressing negative thoughts doesn't work. It only makes us feel worse. And I think the old idea of what we don't talk about can't hurt us has been disproved. So, and actually experience temporary temporary sadness can counterintuitively make us happier. So this was my big manifesto trying to get this out there. And as a therapist, I have to say that seems to be so true. Sometimes people will say, I don't want to start crying because I might not be able to stop. Or they're afraid that if they bring up sad things in therapy, they're like, well, I don't want to be stuck in a dark place. How does allowing ourselves to get through that sadness or how does allowing ourselves to experience that really make us happier in the end? Well, it's really interesting because I I was also sceptic and, and, and personally, I have resisted sadness and professionally, I have dwelled on happiness for a long time. But actually doing research into sadness, I found out there's some really good things about it so that actually we are more clear eyed when we're sad. Um, we are more creative because if we carry on doing the same thing and it, and it brings happiness, why would we ever change? But it's really good for making us stop and do problem solving. Um, we're more generous. We're, we have greater perseverance. So there are there are some really interesting things about sadness that help us connect. And it's the time when we ruminate, but we do have to sit with it, sit with that discomfort for a bit. And then how do we know? Like, how long is it okay to be sad? But then when do you need to, to move on and say, okay, I've been sad long enough or being sad longer isn't necessarily going to be helpful? 
So, well, the experts I spoke to, and you tell me your experience, I'm fascinated, but um, that some people came up with different time frames. So you, for this, maybe three months, for this, maybe two years. But but the general, uh, you know, the pooling I got from, from the people I spoke to was that there is no time frame on something like grief, for example, and we can't hurry it. And even it may not ever go away, but it will lessen if we allow that, that sadness, if we allow to, to process it and to sit with it for a little while. So I guess it's just about, as the title says, it's about trying to find out a way to be sad in a, in a helpful way, rather than in those sort of self-destructive ways that we've probably all tried before. What are some of the most common self-destructive ways that you hear people say that they deal with sadness? Well, I mean, I've tried many of them myself, yep. I will share. Um, but I think we all have crutches. You know, addictions is something that came up time and again as something that people who are unable to process their sadness are more prone to addiction. But addiction can sound like quite a big, scary word, but we all have crutches that we may rely on from shopping to binging on Netflix to um, you know, to alcohol, to to whatever it is that we try to numb out the pain with. So, I mean, for me, it was, I had had issues around food, um, around alcohol, around overwork is a really big one and something that many of us have noticed during the pandemic. We've actually been working more, but without the support networks we might normally have had. So there are, yeah, there are lots of ways I found that people liked to numb out their sadness, but it was all, yeah, avoidance at the heart. We've had other experts on the show talk about that, those habits and the addiction, because a lot of us say, well, I don't have an addiction. Well, most of us do to our phones, if we're honest, and picking up our phones or turning to work technology, those are great ways to distract ourselves, at least temporarily from painful emotions like sadness. How do we get the confidence to say, okay, I'm not necessarily just going to numb myself to pain, but I'm going to allow myself to experience it, at least in small doses to start out? Well, I hope that this book is trying to sort of make a case for that that's a useful thing to even attempt to do. So I guess, first of all, it's it's that you don't fight it. And that was a big thing with sadness for me. I lost my sister when I was growing up and it wasn't something that people talked about. My parents split up. People didn't even tell me that had happened, really. It was just this real culture of not talking about sad things. And then professionally, I was writing about happiness and I kept speaking about it around the world back when we could travel and people would um, ask me how they could be happy at times in their life when really this wasn't possible. So I guess that the first step is to stop that really. It's just this idea of um, accepting that sometimes sad things will happen and that's normal. That's the same response when we experience loss or disappointment um, and then trying to lower our expectations of what we're going to achieve in that time when we are feeling sad. And I agree that there's no timeline when it comes to something like sadness. Uh, when I was 23, I lost my mom. When I was 26, I lost my husband. And knowing that sadness, yeah, it's so uncomfortable, but that you can come out of it on the other side, but it takes a long time, but to not have expectations, because sometimes I think we think, okay, I should feel well after three months or after one year. And it's that expectation that tends to set people up for failure. I can't tell you how many people come into my therapy office thinking, well, I should be over this by now and I'm not. And then they get really judgmental of themselves for not feeling as good as that they think they should. But I also know that sadness doesn't always come from a sad event. Sometimes you just wake up sad for no real reason, right? Yeah, but I wonder, I wonder whether there's, and I'm not trying to sort of confuse depression and sadness, and I've experienced depression as well as a chronic mental illness that requires help. But I wonder whether if we are feeling that normal sadness, um, that sort of temporary emotion, whether it is trying to send us a message in some way. And the more I've been researching this, the more I feel 
convinced really that the days where you do wake up and feel a bit, oh, something's a bit off, then there's something going on and it's worth listening to it to see if maybe there's a message trying to get through. And I'm glad you just brought that up, the difference between sadness and depression. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, so from from my perspective and from the research I've been doing, the depression is, is a chronic mental illness that will require help. And, um, you know, having been the beneficiary of talking therapies and antidepressants over the years, I am not for a moment saying that people should not be doing doing these things. But also, I think the the tendency to pathologize normal sadness is quite problematic because then when we inevitably do feel sad, we somehow think there's something wrong with us. Um, and looking at the, the DSM-5, which the rest of the world looks to for how diagnosis of depression are made, for example, there is no longer a grief clause in there where you can't be diagnosed with depression within, I think it's um, two months of, of losing someone. So, I mean, that just seems to be in terms of common sense, that seems a bit of an issue because things happen to all of us. The Aristotle idea of happiness, um, of a good life being one where you have some good luck because tragedy can affect anyone and it will affect our happiness. So it seems to me that working out what has happened to us is really important as well as thinking about whether there is something wrong with us, because perhaps there isn't a lot of the time. So yeah, I think sadness is is a temporary emotion that can be awakening. It's this, it's this temporary message that can tell us what's wrong. But if we listen, and many of us don't, I guess, in our busy modern lives. Right. I think we, again, go through and try to distract ourselves or pretend that we aren't feeling that way. And there's something about when we see other people who are sad, we want to cheer them up immediately. And I know in my own life, when I was grieving, people were really quick to say, like, let's go to the movies. Let's go do something fun. Because it's really tough to sit with somebody else when they're sad, too. It is really hard. And this is something that we we learn from, from as babies, that actually, you know, the the ability to regulate our own emotions. And, and as a parent now, I, I see it. It's very clear that impulse to if somebody is sad, you want to say, you know, don't cry. Or if someone says, I'm scared, you say, there's nothing to be afraid of. But actually that isn't helpful because then you are negating their feelings. And there's a sense that then the child is not sure if it can trust, if they can trust their own feelings. There can be shame around that. So I think, um, although we are uncomfortable with it, and actually, interestingly, uh, research shows that Americans are outliers in the desire to avoid sadness at all costs. Whereas in other cultures like East Asia or in, in Russia, there is much more of an acceptance that sadness can be helpful and you can experience, experience happiness and sadness at the same time. There's more gran granularity. But I think in the US and in the UK, where I'm from to an extent, we are quite avoidant of sadness. So we do find it really uncomfortable and we kind of have to get over that, I think. So what's something that you could do if you have a friend or a family member who is sad? What's something that you might do for them rather than just try to cheer them up? Well, I so interviewed lots of um, lots of people who, who'd been through tough times. And a lot of the things that came up were, were the idea of just checking in. And you might have found this helpful yourself. The, people just sort of saying, I'm thinking of you and um, yeah, just, just sort of no need to reply, not putting any obligation there. But also I think there's something around doing rather than asking, like, what can I do to help? Because then you're putting that pressure back on that person. Um, and then companionship as well. I think that's something that we've struggled with during the pandemic because we haven't had those social connections to rely on. And there's something so comforting about just being in a room with someone. And I've had friends who have been sad. And if, I'm, if they're not even ready to talk, if you can just be in the room, I found that incredibly powerful. But I'm interested. What's your perspective on that? 
I, I agree. Sometimes just sitting with somebody when they're sad and not forcing conversation, if they don't want to talk, that's okay. And as you said, too, without saying, well, what can I do to help? Sometimes you don't even know. And when you're really sad, it's hard to come up with something. You don't have the energy to think of anything or you're just kind of you feel pressure to say, well, here's what you could do, or I don't need anything. So sometimes it's helpful to say to somebody, hey, I'd like to run an errand for you. Would that be helpful? Or is that okay? And give them just really specific ideas of how you could help. Because our tendency is often, well, let me know if you need anything. Yeah, lasagna came up a lot. <laughs> just leave a lasagna on the door. That will be really helpful. Right. And so I think if we can just be really specific and say, here's, here's something I could do and see if, they, uh, see if the other person finds that to be helpful. I know for me, my brother-in-law cleaned my bathtub in my bathroom and like made it sparkle. He was like, I don't know what I can do for you, but I can clean your bathroom. That's a great, great go ahead. <laughs> can he come to my house next? That'd be great. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and one of the things that you talked about in your book is the link between shame and sadness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we spoke a little bit about you know, growing up, we can often get a sense of shame if we feel like our emotions are not being accepted if we feel like we're not allowed to have them. And I started exploring shame during years of fertility treatment. Um, and I felt that I felt a sort of shame that my body wasn't working in the way I wanted it to. There was lots of language around failure, around infertility and fertility treatment. And I call it like the backpack of shame. I would just put on my backpack of shame every day. I was also having to flash my genitals to strangers whilst I had fertility treatments, which again, society tells us we shouldn't be doing. So there's something the the self uh, the social self preservation theory that in threatening situations that will make our social value it could make it decrease then we are going to feel shame and it's I guess evolutionary speaking so that we don't flash our genitals at strangers because we will then be banished from the group so it kind of makes sense but it's really problematic because it doesn't feel good when we when we have it Carl Jung called it the soul eating emotion shame and whereas guilt revolves around the feeling of having done something bad. Shame is almost, I am bad, like in myself. And it can make us feel worthless and, and no good. And there's strong links with addictions and eating disorders, both of which I have certainly experienced. And there's a really high correlation between shame and depression. And it affects all of us. But I found it really interesting to discover more about the way in which it enters our lives being quite gendered. and. It maybe shouldn't be a surprise at all, but women tend to feel it a lot during the teenage years, entering the workplace, postpartum, um, with conception, with things around miscarriage, where there's still such a culture of silence. And men uh, can often feel it when expressing emotions, um, which just feels like it's doing nobody a disservice. These gendered ideas of shame, whereby women are... are are sort of being excluded and having these really high expectations placed on them. And then men are not even allowed to have these emotions because that's not part of the traditionally masculine identity. Just feels so problematic. And then everyone's feeling terrible about themselves. So yeah, shame's a big one. It's a it's a big backpack to um to start to upend. It is. People will come into my therapy office sometimes and they've carried around some kind of a secret, something for their entire lives that they just feel awful about. And what they don't know is the person who just came in before me has a very similar story. But because nobody talks about it, they don't know that. And when people start to get more comfortable with, oh, okay, like something like depression or something like an addiction, like 
a lot of people struggle with it. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's just what's going on in your life. Just the, the door opens and people can then start to deal with it. And that's often part of healing. Do you have any thoughts on, on shame and how we overcome it, how we deal with it, how we manage it, and how we can turn unhealthy shame into just regular healthy sadness? I think, as you say, it's it's the talking about it and, and making it visible. So since since writing this book and I, I did a TED talk where I talked about uh, depression and, and taking antidepressants and, and that sort of thing where somebody who perhaps you might not have thought might have experienced something like that or or somebody who think oh that's that could be me it's incredibly powerful and since writing this book people will get in touch and share their stories whereas previously when i was writing about happiness people would get in touch and share their happiness stories which is wonderful and lovely and joyous but everybody has stuff everybody has pain everyone has a backpack so actually i think it is by talking about it and you know as you say if you're saying to your client this is not that unusual. And my therapist does this too. My therapist will say, well, actually I had, I had a woman in last week or without going into detail who will share that this is not that unusual. I think that's really helpful to break down that stigma to realize that you're not alone. I think so too. And we all feel a lot of the same emotions, maybe about different things. I might get anxious about something different than you get anxious about, but yet the emotions are often very much the same. We feel them to the same extent or to the same degree, just about different things. Yet a lot of people just don't want to talk about it. And we think we're we're weird for having certain thoughts or feelings or behaviors. But I totally agree. The more we talk about it, the better off we'll all be. Another thing that really stuck out to me in your book is the line where you said, uh, we have this myth that no one will love you until you love yourself. And I we've been told that so many times. We still see that all over social media and you have to love yourself first. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that's a myth? Yeah. So it's the um, psychiatrist Bruce Perry, who I really like reading his work. And um, and he said that, that, as you say, for years we've thought that, but actually that the capacity to love cannot be built in isolation. So actually we can't love ourselves unless we have been loved and are loved. And that feels like a much greater challenge. I think especially in these days where many self-help books will ask us to manifest and, and to sort of imagine this perfect life for ourselves and then and give ourselves a hug and love ourselves. And, and if we don't have a perfect life or if things don't feel great, it's somehow our fault that we have not manifested it hard enough. And I think with still taking responsibility for our actions, it's really helpful to understand where we've come from and that we all have experiences, we all have stuff. And so actually, if we haven't been taught how to love, how are we going to love ourselves? And this is harder if we haven't been taught that as a child. It's, it's, we have to work a little harder at that as an adult. We can do it with our friends. We can work with a therapist or, or get an understanding that we are worthy and deserving of a loving relationship. But, but it's hard. And I think it's helpful to acknowledge that going along with the shame piece so that we don't feel there's something wrong with me. What's wrong with me? Why aren't I loving myself? Why aren't I being loved? Well, maybe we've never had that. And so that's something to work on. I love that you said that. Uh, just reading that made me realize about so many things and how unhealthy that message can be that we put that out there. And I spent most of my adult life as a foster parent. And a lot of the kids who came to my home as in the foster care system never had love. And you can see it through their behavior, their actions, how they feel, how they cope with stuff. And some of them are really angry. Some of them really struggle to like themselves even a little bit. 
And you understand why, because they've been mistreated by the people who were supposed to love them the most. And that's, and that is just so sad. And it, I think that's, for, from the research I've done and from the interviews that I've done, it's it's taking that and acknowledging that that is just heartbreaking and that's really sad. And then thinking, okay, what can I do about that? And and you know, you're doing amazing work fostering. And that, that for me, the the idea of, the, of when we are feeling sad, what we can then do is is acts of service, and that we can try and do something for someone else as a way to sort of do something useful with that sadness. Yes, there's some research that will show a kid who maybe doesn't have the best home life. If they have one positive adult in their life, it makes a huge difference. So it might be a coach, it might be a teacher, maybe a neighbor. As long as they feel like somebody out there cares about them, it makes a huge difference. So if you don't get that love from somebody you were supposed to, like your parents, I think you can go out there and form healthy relationships and, and that helps with your self-esteem later on in life. It's amazing how many people credit teachers, isn't it? When they sort of say, oh yeah, I remember this, my one English teacher and she told me I could do it. And then I thought maybe I can do it. Yeah, it's really powerful. Yes, I think so as well. So in terms of solutions, what do we do? How do we handle sadness? How do we know, okay, when I'm sad, what do I do with that feeling? Sometimes people just like, I don't know, you just sit on the couch and cry or should you go outside and try to chew yourself up? So how do we cope with sad feelings? So I would say all of the above. Um, I think I'm always really interested to to learn, you know, Charles Darwin famously denied the usefulness of tears. And we know now that crying reduces cortisol. We are expressing that emotion. We find that soothing. Um, and men and women are both feel feel sort of that compulsion to cry, but men tend to be socialized out of it by the age of, I mean, by 13, which is just doing nobody any favors. So we need to teach boys that they can cry and we need to teach girls that they're allowed anger. Everyone is allowed all of their emotions. And then I think it is, it is giving time for that sadness. It is um, perhaps using like something like emotional arousal, putting on a piece of music that makes you feel something to sort of take you to that place if you feel like you're teetering on the edge. Um, and, but then also getting outside, you know, there's so much research into the power of exercise for endorphins. There's lots about uh, combining exercise with time spent outside is giving us added benefits and it can reduce anxiety. Um, my old university, they just found that green exercise, as they call it, really reduces tension. And I found it really fascinating to speak to a guy called Dr. Brendan Stubbs in the UK, who is sort of leading expert on movement and mood and found that not only does exercise make us feel good, but that not moving for as little as as you know, three days, definitely by a week, actively makes us feel worse. So he found in, in studies now that and going back quite some years that if we can do 20 minutes of light exercise a day, even just a walk will reduce the risk of depression by 30%, which just feels staggering and, and a really helpful, accessible way to start doing something. I think um, talking, incredibly powerful, obviously. And what you know, I, I appreciate that it can feel like a luxury talking therapy and that it isn't accessible for everyone. So I was really heartened speaking to psychologists, psychiatrists who would say, actually, it's just talking to somebody who will not interrupt and who will listen without judgment that matters. So I call it the buddy system. If you just have one person on speed dial who you can just agree that you will listen when they speak and they will listen when you speak. And then you could just have that reciprocal arrangement so that you can, you know, get in touch when I call it when, when Shift FM is playing for too long in your brain, that you can just get in touch and unscramble. So that that's, yeah, the really helpful thing. And then I... I may be biased, but I think books are incredibly powerful in terms of what to do when we're feeling sad. They are the 
ultimate exercise in empathy. We are putting ourselves in someone else's shoes and brain scans show that when we read, we mentally rehearse the activities and sights and sounds of a story. So stimulating neural pathways and um, I think sad books are supposed to stimulate oxytocin, the hormone of care and connection, and scary stories trigger endorphins as we get ready to fight off imagined pain in real life. So actually reading and putting ourselves in someone else's shoes is a really good way of getting some perspective on what we are experiencing. And when um, when I, I have experienced depression or, or spells of real sadness, and sometimes, you know, when the words sort of dance around the page and you can't quite concentrate on a book. Well, audiobooks are really helpful there as well. And near where I live now in Denmark, there are culture vitamin courses. And you see these popping up all over Scandinavia and some in Australia with arts on prescription, because it's now totally accepted that arts and culture and theatre are really good for us when we are feeling sad. So those are some of my recommendations. Well, that's a great list. And I have a question about that. So let's say I'm in a sad mood and I'm going to listen to music. Do I turn on sad music? Do I turn on something happy that's going to boost my mood? Or if I want to read a book, how do I know whether to pick something that is sad or something that's really uplifting? Yes. And it's so fascinating. Yes. So they've studied um, whether people, when they are in a, a low mood, what music they naturally gravitate towards. And it is sad music because which we kind of makes sense. It doesn't feel quite conscionable to go to Bon Jovi, perhaps when we are feeling low, but actually this is helpful. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily wallowing, but sad music can act as a companion in our sadness. We feel less alone again. So it's about that connection. So actually that can be really powerful. There's a, there's a great study where, um, Music has been shown to help us heal as well when we are experiencing tough times and even physically. And um, mice, in a study back in 2012, mice were played Verdi's La Traviata during recovery from a heart transplant. And the mice who were played opera lived four times as long as mice who were denied their fill of opera. So, you know, it's essentially life support. I think I'm a big believer in, in the power of music for, for helping us when we are at our lowest ebb. I like that a lot. Then how do we decide, okay, enough's enough. I've been listening to sad music all day or for six days straight. How do you know, okay, maybe now it's time to to try something happy? Well, um, I think if you can get out there and get some get some vitamin D and get some of the endorphins and, and get out into nature, that's a really helpful thing. And then you might start being ready for um, the higher beats per minute, which I think it's over 150 beats per minute have been proven to make us feel more upbeat and happier. And I think it's Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer is one of the top 10 of a list of songs. Have you heard this one? That can um, give us a bit of a boost when we feel like we may be ready for the happies again. But um, but then I think it's it's about being galvanized and rested and restored and ready to look after ourselves um, and and then give something back. I think for years, I would, I used to work in women's magazines in London. I worked long hours. I was going through all this fertility treatment. I was very stressed. And I thought I was doing all the right things to be happy in my life. I was doing lots of exercise classes. I was drinking my green juices, but I was really stressed. And I was on my smartphone all the time and on my BlackBerry, which dates me. But um, so we have to rest as well. We have to rest and restore. So if we're still feeling sad, I think it's also worth looking at, am I actually getting proper rest? Am I getting seven to nine hours a night? Am I switching off my smartphone for 12 hours a day or putting it on airplane mode? Just looking at these a bit boring, but important aspects to make sure that we're getting even. 
One of the things I've talked about on this show is taking a look at your emotions sometimes and asking, is this a friend right now or an enemy? Sadness can be our friend when we are like honoring something we lost. Maybe you're moving to a new city, you're changing jobs, you're going through something. And being sad can remind you maybe why you like that job or why you moved to that city in the first place. Or maybe you're honoring a, a loved one that you don't have contact with anymore. But it becomes an enemy when it gets in the way of enjoying life. If after a week you still can't get off the couch or after a few days you find yourself more like wallowing and you start to get into the self-pity mode, then it's time to change course. What do you think about that strategy of saying, all right, is my sadness right now a friend or an enemy? And if it's your friend, just embrace it for a little longer. But if it's an enemy, say, okay, maybe it's time to turn on the happy music or to go outside and do something different. Oh, that's a great question. I, I'm not sure I entirely feel the same. I think um, if we are looking after ourselves in all of the ways that we should be, and we still feel that niggling sense of sadness, then I would say that there's still a message trying to get through and that maybe we need to to tune into that a bit more. And then of course, if it's going on for more than a couple of weeks, I would you know go and speak to a doctor and just see if there's something else there. But I think I think periods of sadness can go on for longer. If we are, for instance, like ending a marriage or moving, um, losing our home or losing our job, we, we are going to feel sad for more than say three days. And I think we might need to sort of, again, lower our expectations as to when we expect to feel that we can click our fingers and be be done with that sadness. And and I guess that's I agree with that too, that there isn't a timeline, but I guess in terms of recognizing when is this starting to become unhealthy, maybe when my sadness makes it so I don't socialize because I don't feel like going out of the house for an extended period of time. And that's the one thing maybe that would help pull me out of this because maybe I'm lonely after going through a divorce, so I don't go out of the house then I stay stuck in a cycle of sadness. So how do you know when it's time to sort of break out of that, change your behavior? Sometimes we have to act a little contrary to how we feel. If you say, okay, I'm going to go outside and move around, even though I don't feel like it, but that might be the one thing that helps me break out of this or start to feel better. Yes, that's true. I guess I I am quite sort of strict on saying these are the things that you may not feel like doing, but you are going to have to eat some protein, chuck a vegetable your way once in a while, move your body for 20 minutes each day. Uh, you're going to have to have a buddy. You're going to have to have the buddy system and and have contact with people. And again, if you're feeling really sad and you're not up to talking, then you are going to have to message somebody and say, could you come over? So yeah, we do have to do something and we do have to reach out. Um, and then I think... If we also, if we have this idea of, of being engaged and doing something someone else, that will make us feel not only a sense of belonging and a sense of identity and a sense of self-worth, but we're also, um, we're answerable. We, we have to be at that place by that certain time, or we have to respond to that message because other people are relying on us. So not to, to cram our life with obligations, but if we're thinking about something beyond ourselves, that can be really helpful as well, whether it's, you know, a dog or kids or volunteering, if there's something to care about beyond ourselves, it's hugely helpful. And I like that having that bare minimum of things that you're going to do, no matter how sad you are, you're still going to eat, you're still going to at least message somebody, even if you can't talk to help make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Because if you aren't taking care of your brain and your body, it becomes nearly impossible to regulate your emotions. And you talk a lot about the messages that we get from sadness. Can you give me an example of uh, a message that you've gotten in your own life, something you've learned from a period of sadness and it taught you something? Oh, there's a question. I think um, I think for me, the times that I've felt really low and I have tried to power on with 
busyness. It has usually been because there's something I need to address, whether that's in a relationship or that's um, changing my focus at work, whether I had taken on too much, um, whether I needed to pivot in some way. Um, I, I've had times where I've tried to, to do it all and tried to do the martyr thing and then realizing when I'm feeling low for a while, actually, I need to, I need to get help. I need to get some extra, get a babysitter. I need to get some extra help with childcare. I need to you know, get someone to, who's offered to bring me some food, actually let them in and, and let that help in. So for me, it's acknowledging that vulnerability and, um, and not almost being feeling helpless because I'm so determined to be independent. So that's my personal cross to bear um, that I I try to do lots of things and then feel somehow surprised that it all feels a bit hard. But when I when I can sit with that for a little while and feel that discomfort, I normally get the memo that oh yes, that's this is what needs to happen here. I like that. So knowing that your sadness might be a signal to change something in your environment, you don't necessarily need to change yourself or anything, but maybe just add something to your day, subtract something else that's not working, make some sort yeah. of a change. Like a scales. I like that a lot. So one last question for you. To a listener out there who maybe says, uh, I struggle with sadness. I don't dare allow myself to even feel sad sometimes because I'm afraid I'll get stuck there. What would your parting wisdom be for somebody who says something like that? I would say that if we are feeling sad a lot and we're trying to not go there, that's probably why we're feeling sad a lot. I think, you know, like a ball, if you're trying to push a ball underwater, it's just going to pop up. And the the experts I spoke to and the research I've looked at going back decades now has shown that, that you know, that thought suppression, that suppressing any of our emotions doesn't work. And we can choose how we express them, but they are there and we do have to accept and acknowledge them. So if you're feeling sad all the time because you won't let yourself feel sad, I think you have to now have a little read, stop and feel sad for a while. I agree. I think this um, idea that we should be happy all the time and the idea that we need to chase happiness is actually causing a lot of people to feel worse, to know that you can be sad and that's okay. And it doesn't mean that you're a negative person or that you have a sad life. You're just going to feel it for a little while and it will actually allow the happy feelings to feel so much better. I can say this from my own life that uh, when you feel really bad, it really makes me enjoy the really good times sometimes because I know what it's like to not feel like that. Yeah, it's just, it's, yeah, it's absolutely. It's this idea that you are not broken. We are just experiencing stuff and we all get sad. Well, Helen Russell, thank you for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. I know that your book is already helping a lot of people and I have no doubt that it will continue to help people know that it's okay and how to be sad and that that can be part of happiness. Thank you so much. It's a real joy to speak to you. Ah, oh, thank you so much for being here. That was wonderful. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Helen's strategies that I really liked and how using them might help you grow mentally stronger too. Number one, acknowledge and accept sad feelings. I really like that Helen wrote a book about how to be sad. Most of us weren't ever taught that it's okay to feel sad, and we certainly weren't taught how to take care of ourselves when we feel that way. But you can't start coping with sad feelings until you acknowledge how you feel. And you have to give yourself permission to feel that way. If you try to suppress sad feelings, they'll follow you around. And sometimes those emotions come out in some pretty unpleasant ways. You might get angry and irritable a lot, or you might even have trouble reaching your goals. So take time to notice when you feel sad and allow yourself to stay there for a while. And like Helen said, you might learn a lot about yourself or the changes you want to make in your life. 
Number two, listen to music. I appreciate that Helen talked about how music can help us cope with sadness. And I like that she talked about how listening to sad music can help you feel less alone. I also appreciated that she talked about how listening to upbeat music can boost your mood. We've actually done some research on music and mental health at Very Well Mind, and we discovered that 97% of you said that you turned to music to cope with your feelings during the pandemic. And 41% of you said that music helped you cope with feeling lonely. Of course, though, music can take a toll on your mood, too. Filling your day with sad music might decrease your mood. There's research that found that people who have depression are more likely to listen to music that increases their depression. So be mindful of what you're listening to and how it impacts your emotional state. And number three, use the buddy system. Helen talked about having someone you can share your feelings with. Knowing you can talk to a non-judgmental person about what's going on in your life and how you feel about it can make a huge difference in your overall well-being. Of course, though, it's tough to find someone that you can open up to. But you might find that once you start sharing with someone in your life, they might be happy to listen. And they might even want to share more of their life with you, too. If you don't have someone in your life that you feel comfortable talking to, you could always reach out to a therapist or even a trained listener. There's a website called Seven Cups where you can talk to someone free of charge. It's a volunteer as opposed to a therapist, but you might find that talking to someone helps you feel better. So those are three of Helen's strategies that I highly recommend. Acknowledge and accept your sad feelings. Listen to music and use the buddy system. If you want to learn more of Helen's tips, check out her book, How to Be Sad. It's filled with useful strategies for coping with sad feelings. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.